The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Ingrid Blaufarb-Hughes. Ingrid was born in London in 1945 and grew up in Greece, Washington, D.C., Saigon, Singapore, and Colorado. With her husband, she brought up their two children in New York, and there, for many years, she taught English to immigrants and native New Yorkers at the City University. She served as an officer in the Union of Faculty and Staff at CUNY, then after her son's death, devoted herself to writing about him. Her poems and stories have been published in a number of print and online periodicals, and her new book, Losing Erin, which we're here to talk about today, is available from Amazon. She lives now in the Hudson Valley, where she's active in a peace group, Women in Black. We have that out here, too. Welcome, Ingrid. Thank you, Cheryl. So so good to have you with me today. And I just wanted to say I really appreciate a few things. One, your book. It's beautifully written, and uh, I, it really gave me a window into your experiences. And also, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the losses for not just the person with schizophrenia but also everyone around them I think that's just so important to um, to share so that people have a greater awareness it is it is it's a very um, tough thing for the members of a family when one member comes down with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia everything changes. And in our family, Aaron, we we all respected and loved Aaron so much, and he just had, from childhood, always seemed on top of everything. He could, Mm. you know, by the time he he was in high school, he, he was really interested in so many different things in physics and in his uh, projects and he was good at everything. He was just a, a, and a lovely, kind, generous person and then this terrible illness took over and that, that was a huge 
the thing that I thought I was as I was reading the book, of course, as a I'm a I'm a therapist for a living, so of course I know that that's extremely common in that particular illness to be diagnosed kind of late teens um, in that time frame. But while I was reading your book, I was so very aware that, of course, that means you live 19, you know, 18, 19, however many years with this person that doesn't, doesn't have any indications for that. Uh, that you're just uh, relating to this person that you love and um, then suddenly the entire landscape has changed. Right. In fact, it changed gradually, but we didn't catch on. You know, it, it was hard to see that these were really deep changes and, Mm. um, and then, uh, it was unavoidable. It was clear. I mean, we were lucky because um, Aaron had such a a good life until he got sick. I'm very sad for parents whose children have schizophrenia in childhood or in their early teens. I think that must be a very, very hard thing to live with, to deal with. But that's not how it was for us. We had those wonderful years. Yes. And um, then, of course, it became so terribly bad uh, that he was unable to maintain his life. And um, I'd like you to share the section from the first page of your book, uh, which is kind of the in a in a in a way the end of his life story. Um, yeah. But 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 it makes sense that you started there to me. Uh, I wonder if you'd read that. My daughter got my daughter took the call. It was a Saturday in April of nineteen ninety nine. And I was just getting out of the shower, looking forward to a quiet day and then a quiet week with no classes or student papers to read. As I was reaching for my clothes, I heard footsteps pelting down the stairs. Stasha was crying, yelling, Mom, Mom, Mom. Why is she so histrionic, I thought striding through the bedroom to throw open the door. A woman from the embassy in Paris called. They found Aaron's body hanging from a tree. Stasha is so irritating, I thought. And at the same time, no, it can't be. We'll talk to him and explain he doesn't have to do this. I tried to picture Aaron in a tree, but I couldn't. Taking up the telephone to call Paris, I was half aware of a familiar tension in my spine, a burden of fear and anxiety. Stasha and I sat on the bed as I punched out the long number she had written down. American Embassy, this is Ingrid Hughes. Someone called me about my son. One moment, please. I'll patch you through. Holding the phone to one ear, 
I sat on the edge of the bed, my arm around Stasha, crying a little, staring at the brick hearth of the defunct fireplace a few feet away. The bricks had black scorch marks from long ago, but they were scraped naked now, the fireplace barren and empty. The duty officer came on. Mrs. Hughes? Yes. Your daughter told you? Yes. The police found your son hanging from a big tree in a park about noon. Now I could see it, the big tree, Aaron's long, narrow body hanging. That's, that's the end of that passage. What stood out to me so much is the the shock, the 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 kind of sense of unreality that happens in a moment like that, but also in a way, underneath, I also picked up on maybe a lack of surprise, and it made me wonder if you had prepared yourself in some way, maybe not consciously, that you thought this might someday happen? Um, I don't know if that is quite it. I will say, although I don't know whether I was prepared or not, Certainly. Well, you couldn't, of course, be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, hope I didn't give that I was a not surprised. He, was, he had been so unhappy. Um, I was shocked. I, I was, uh, you know, very shocked and frightened, and for, for some time I couldn't sleep, and I had nightmares, and a, a lot of... Uh, of repercussions um, uh, of such a, a, a shocking, violent um, death, but but I knew how miserable he was. I it, he was, and he wasn't miserable quietly. He was. Uh, <laughs> it, it was clear to everyone that he was miserable, and he made lives very difficult for us. So we couldn't not know. He he had been living with us, so I had been very aware of how unhappy he was. Yes, and also... you're right. I wasn't surprised. Certainly shocked, traumatized, all of that, but there was a sense of of, um, that was one of the possibilities. And uh, the the thing that then I, I came to know about him in this process, which of course is not not uncommon, is that he just really, uh, in some way, didn't think of himself as having a, a treatable illness. Right. He, like um, many people who suffer from schizophrenia, he was unable to perceive his own illness. Um, there's actually a, a name for that, anosognosia, mm. the inability to perceive your own illness. And it happens to 
um, not only people with mental illnesses, but uh, sometimes a stroke victim who feels like uh, there's, they don't know why they can't move themselves, and they deny it. They say, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I haven't lost the use of my arm, even though they can't move it. And in Aaron and in many people living with schizophrenia, this meant that he couldn't recognize that he had an illness, and therefore, since he suffered from paranoia, it was clearly in the world that these things were being done to him. Believing, so was, believing his distorted reality. Of course. A, yeah. Believing it entirely. He had no other explanation. Nothing else meant, made sense. You know, yeah. it made me think um, a little bit randomly, I guess. I've, I've been exposed to quite a bit of, of Native American culture or, or tradition. And um, people who... See, see a different world, are considered holy people, and very much protected, and, and, you know, everybody kind of gathers around to keep people with that kind of um, different view of the world safe, and I wonder if that were our culture, whether that might, because I think in our culture, people who are different do, in fact... Um, receive a lot of judgment, perhaps bullying sometimes. Um, do you think that's part of the paranoia, perhaps? I think the paranoia is caused by the brain. I don't, you know, schizophrenia is an illness of the brain. For I sure. don't think that it's caused by the society around a person, and certainly not in Aaron's case. Um, He was not bullied. He was, uh, he heard voices that were insulting him. Um, Mm. That's a really important thing you're saying that, um, you know, you were able, as the person witnessing what he was going through, to really take in, either while he was living or since, uh, that it was a, a brain, a biological condition because you could see that it didn't relate to his life. For some people it does, and that must make it harder to see that. Yes, I'm sure it does. I, I also was was thinking about, uh, of course, as a therapist and a parent, I've thought a lot about um, how we uh, discover the boundaries we need to hold with our kids and, you know, figure out how to how to enforce them, I guess, how to support them. But I was I was thinking how hard that would be when you know that uh, someone's thinking is bio, kind of biologically distorted. Then how do you decide how to help, not help, 
because he won't be able to, he won't respond to, for instance, never giving him money or, you know, that's not going to change the situation. Did you struggle with how much to help, where to help, where not to help? Well, on the question of money, um, we, we did help him and... There was a, a point when I wondered if we should stop helping him, um, thinking that then he would probably return to live with us. Because for the first five years after his psychotic break, he was not living with, with us. He was far away, first in Boston, and then he went to Paris, where he lived for several years. And I thought maybe he would return from Paris, and if we um, reduced our support or eliminated it. But the psychiatrist with whom his father and I consulted, a wonderful man, C. Christian Beals, thought that he might... uh, simply go on the streets and be, have, have a worse breakdown. And mm. then that just didn't, that, that was clearly not going to help anybody or advance anything. So uh, we continued. Um, he did get some SSI also. Uh-huh. And so that that was that was very interesting to me. He didn't accept that he had any kind of illness, and yet I've I've had clients that get SSI benefits. You actually have to apply for them. You have to kind of prove you need it as a young person. So that was a very interesting combination in my mind. Well, he had a period, uh, an interval when he he recognized or he partially recognized that he did have a mental illness. He seemed to have done some reading um, and he looked up his symptoms and saw that the diagnosis symptoms like his was schizophrenia, and he um, got in contact with a uh, mental health center, the Lindemann Mental Health Center in Boston, and he interviewed the psychiatrist there, interviewed him, and he also talked with a social worker, and they all agreed that he had schizophrenia, and they um, helped him, although he didn't require a lot of help. I mean, he was still very competent at that kind of thing to right. apply. And, but this, I, his acceptance of this was only very partial at best, and he... Uh, he wouldn't, they offered him housing in a residence for people with pro, 
problems like his, but he wouldn't go there, and he he ran off, and uh, within a few months, he went off to Paris, and and he did not he he rejected he again rejected the idea that he had uh, was living with schizophrenia. So mm-hmm. it, it was a but there was that little window when that he little applied. window, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's keep talking about that when we get back because that set what the impact on all of you of that I I can imagine would be mighty that you'd you'd have some hope now that he understands you know so let's talk about that more when we get back and listeners you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America and to find my guest go to IngridBlauferPudes dot com that's I-N-G-R-I-D-B-L-A-U-F-A-R-B-H-U-G-H-E-S dot com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Ingrid Blauford Hughes about her son, Aaron, his eight years living with schizophrenia and that leading to his eventual suicide. And before the break, Ingrid, we we were talking about these moments where it looked as if he might um accept um that he had something going on that needed to be addressed and times when he seemed to 
believe in his diagnosis and and do some things to um, to try to address it at least getting getting SSI would be an example and all that for you and your family that must have been uh, so wrenching to have him kind of see it and then not see it again right he I, I couldn't believe it when um, I understood that he seemed to uh, recognize that he did have an illness. You know, I was just amazed. And the psychiatrist who interviewed him was uh, optimistic that he would take medication, that he would agree to treatment, but... It didn't happen, and within a short time, as I say, he had gone off to Paris. And I did hold on to this idea that he understood for a while, despite the fact that he then developed the delusion, which was for me the most painful of all the delusions that he had, that his father and I were not his parents, but people who were imposters that we were pretending to be his parents. And um, oh, that must have been just uh, ripping, because of course, at, at, of course, at the very same time, you were putting so much care and energy into trying to get him the help that he needed. Yes, it was very sad. It was, I was, um, it, it was one of the saddest parts for me, um, just losing Aaron was, was just so wrenching from the time when he got sick. It, it felt like he was a different person altogether, and very rarely there would be a little glimpse of the person who we had known. And a great deal of the time, he was so angry. And of course, you could see that you would be angry if your parents were not your parents. They were pretending to be, and they were lying to you, and they were cooperating with uh, people who were taunting you and insulting you and uh, harassing you and following you and all the other symptoms that he had. He, mm. To him, they were reality, and we were helping to make this reality happen. And so... Of course, he was very angry, and it was very hard. Most as I, all the aspects of his illness were hard on us, but that was kind of the 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 saddest in the in a. I don't know how to say, you know, in my. Oh yeah, I can I can well imagine um, just you know thinking of my own children who are grown now 23 28 and 36 um and what it might be like to be denied in that way um 
very painful. What about his sister Stasha? Did he think she was also not his sister? I I don't know. Um, I in general he was more uh, less angry at her and um, more likely to accept intervention from her or um, his girlfriend, Catherine, who had been his girlfriend in high school and then was again when he, he lived with us in the last 18 months of his life. Mm. Um, he, it, it, you know, schizophrenia is a thought disorder, a, and a person who has it, and certainly Aaron, doesn't think very logically. Um, they aren't my parents, therefore, my sister must not be my sister. Yes. And, it it isn't it doesn't get worked out that way um which must have been another uh very wrenching thing because he strike he struck me before his illness as a remarkably logical person yeah uh, a, a person who really thought things through who was very uh, evidence-based, I guess we'd say, um, mm-hmm. and very thoughtful. And right. so I, I can imagine that was just such a shock to have this same uh, same person be so illogical. Yeah, it was. It was. And you it said it, it. It dawned on you slowly over time. Um, I, there's a there's a place in your book where you talk about when you finally fully realized. Uh, would you, would you share that? I know yeah. this is quite a ways uh, through his illness when no. when it became so remarkably clear. Well, um, you know, in retrospect, I saw especially when I got um, his medical records and I reviewed his journals and my own journals, I realized that he had begun to be ill um, while he was in college. And schizophrenia progresses and remits. Um, So he was in graduate school at MIT On the phone one Sunday evening, he seemed particularly disturbed and discouraged. You sound upset, I said. I am upset. I'd like to help. You want to help, he said dubiously. Yes, I do. But he didn't see how I could. We said goodbye. Despite his obvious unhappiness, despite his recent outburst of tears, I was unprepared for what came next. A few minutes later, he called me back. Maybe you do want to help, he said, 
and maybe you know that when I walk on the street, people are making fun of me in an organized and systematic way. Fear shot through me. With that one sentence, I knew he had crossed the line into madness, into a world of his imaginings, a world far from ours. What was real to him was plainly impossible. I feel as if in recognizing the the deep problem of someone we love, it is true that their, our minds try to make something out of it until uh, at some point it's just irrefutable. Yes, right. And that seems like that kind of moment for you. It certainly was. There's no... There's no other way of understanding a statement like that. Um, But yes, for a long time I thought, well, he's just, he's mad at me and his father because we're separating. He's, uh, you know, and so I didn't, and, and also because separating from his father took so much emotional energy of mine, I think I wasn't able to perceive. But it, it, you just, you keep thinking that the person you know is the person you know. Absolutely. As you say, it's no longer possible. And what do you think, to the degree that, that you know this, all of that was uh, was like for your daughter because, of course, much younger age, much less experience dealing with difficulty, one would think. How did she uh, process her brother's decline, I guess, or his illness, the effects of his illness? Well, um how she felt in the period when um, he was deteriorating, I don't really know. I know it was very hard for her. It was she was shocked and frightened, and that it was very tough for her. Um, just. She lost somebody who she had been very close to. Um, They had been good friends, and now he couldn't be friends any Mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. The the other thing I'm I'm aware of from working with people who who had mental illness in their families, uh, and, you know, we're talking about that in therapy, is that it, it... it introduces this fear for yourself. Yes, that's right. That that um, most people are not walking around with. Right, that's um, right. And, and I wondered about that. Yes, she was frightened, and she, um, she, she said a couple of times, I feel like it's contagious. 
I feel like Aaron's illness is contagious. Um, but yes, it does absolutely pose a threat for a, a sibling. Um, so that's a very scary thing. And that was not something, of course, that that his father and I had to deal with because we were well past the age um, when schizophrenia sets in, usually. Right, yes. I also sort of hear that in in two ways. There's the fear, of course, of maybe getting sick herself, but there's also the way in which the entire family is sick in a way that all of you (laughs) all of you were in it with him and that was just so clear uh through your voice in the book how deeply affected all of you were by constantly living next to his illness and trying to trying to navigate that yes yes it was very hard I mean, it was very hard. The years when he was away from us and we couldn't see him were very hard. And then the year um, or 18 months when he was back home and was also very hard. He was he was very angry. He was insulting me. He he had the idea that if if he he. When he came back from Paris to New York, he got in touch with his friend Catherine, a wonderful person, and um, she, they struck up their old re- or picked up their old relationship, and um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, well, we were talking about um, oh, the, everyone yes. kind of being in the illness with him at yes. some and level. He he persuaded himself that Kath, she couldn't have him live with her. She was working a very demanding job. She was happy to spend time with him. She was happy to have him visit on weekends, but she couldn't have him living with her. Her job was too difficult, and he decided that if he was really horrible to me, I would throw him out. And then Catherine would take him in. So mm. this kind of thing mm. happened more than once. Um, and he was so angry. He was so frustrated. He was so miserable. And his father and I were the best people to take it out on. And he did. It was it was very difficult for for us, and um, I I went sometimes to um, meetings of other parents who's um, who had sons and daughters living with mental illness, but I, I never. It never; those meetings never worked for me very well. I couldn't. I, I didn't feel like I had enough in common with them. It often seemed as if you know their kids were were willing to treat have their illnesses treated, and Aaron was off 
in another part of the world. It, it was um, so. I there there we were trying to deal with it, just kind of groping along. And uh, there was a way in which, when you talked about his his. Um after his death, it seemed as if you got more support from your community then than when you were, um, it, it felt to me as if you did have good professional help, but I wasn't sure you really got enough help from your friends and community. I don't think that we did. I don't think that people understood um, most people don't understand about mental illness, and um, they don't know how to be helpful. They don't. Everybody knows what to do when someone dies. You know, you. That's something. At least, at least doing. temporarily. <laughs> yes, at, at least yeah. in the short term, they mm-hmm. know that. Uh, you know, they give you a hug, they bring you a meal, they they stop by and visit, uh, all of those things. But it's not so clear-cut. And people are anxious about mental illness. Um, their own anxieties about mental illness get in the way of um, offering the kind of support that might help. I mean, maybe things are better now. This was uh, almost 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago. So I hope that for people living with these problems now, there is more support. I hope so, too. But when we come back from our our break, let's talk about what maybe would have helped. Uh, Maybe how people who are... um, aware of people in their community or friends or family who are who are confronting this what does support them um, and and while we're on the break listeners please go to the good grief host page at voice America to find links to everything about me and to find my guest go to Ingrid Blaufarbhues.com. back soon Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Ingrid Blauford Hughes talking about her book, Losing Aaron, about her son. And before the break, we just touched on uh, how difficult it it was to uh, get, in a way, more support when Aaron died than before that. And um, I was hoping you could just share what you think, looking back on it, of course, you've just said it's 20 years ago at least. But looking back on it, what do you think might have felt supportive to you? Well, um, could I answer that question by, um, rather than going back, by uh, suggesting what I think people could do? I think Absolutely. The first thing is um, just what you do when every, whenever someone is, uh, has someone ill in their family. You say, is there anything I can do to help? What can I do to help? Can, mm-hmm. I, can I bring you a meal? Can I, um, do you want to go to a movie? Is there uh, something I can help with? And it's a hard thing because a person, a parent, or sometimes it's a sibling living with a mentally ill member of the family, it's not, is, is, this is, this is something they're living with for years. So it's always to be aware of that. Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to not talk about it? Would you like to go do something? Um, Would you like to get out and go to the park or go to a movie or go to a show? That's really, I think, where people can begin. Um, Uh, How I sum that up is stay in. Uh, don't, don't, don't drop out just because you can't fix it. And right. of course, that's very familiar to me from, uh, you know, living with the, the um, disabling cancer of my partner for nearly a decade. That there wasn't any way, she was going to die of it at some point, And there wasn't any way for anyone to change that. But there were certainly ways for people to stay present with us that made a huge difference in how we experienced those years. Right. Just because we got love through it. Yes. In a sense. Well, people are not afraid that that cancer is contagious. Yes. Um, I, I think people are a lot better educated about cancer than they are about mental illness. Um, you know, uh, pe- people really are very anxious. Uh, one woman, and she was a good friend of mine, and I liked her a lot, but she would say, I think it's dangerous for you to be living with Aaron. 
And I would be so irritated to have somebody say something like that. Well, yes, because... (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I'll just say that that uh, in some sense that doesn't take into account uh, your uh, the reasons for your decision. And the, also, the, it doesn't respect my own ability to assess whether I'm in danger or not. Yes, yes. Um, so both of those things, right? But I I think just the kind of kindness that you would offer somebody who has uh, cancer, the family of someone with cancer. That's the model. Um, Which, of course, even at that, some people are better or worse at. Absolutely. Uh, There's a a line of cards out uh, addressing that, you know, all the things like, there's a card that says, uh, I don't know what to say, so I'm sending you this card because a lot of times when people don't know what to say, they don't get in touch at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, right. That sort of thing. So, but, but I think that there, there, is, there is shame involved in a cancer diagnosis, weirdly, since it's also strictly biological, but n- not as much, I feel. And I wonder if that affected it on your end. Was it harder, do you think, to reach out for support um, dealing with mental illness than it might have been if he had uh, some other kind of illness? It might have been. I I think that I was less likely to talk about him um, even when something somebody said uh, would would make me think about him, I, I was less likely to um, bring it up. Mm. You kind of let yourself go, or kind of went quiet about him in some way. In, in some situations. I mean, with my good friends, um, of course they knew, and even friends I... I, who hadn't known him, known him as a um, hadn't known me when he he was younger, um, knew that I had a son who was living with schizophrenia, and uh, occasionally they would bump into him if they came over to the house to visit. Um, but if you think. Well, I could say, um, yes, I know what that's like, something or other, uh, because uh, my son is living with schizophrenia, but then you think to yourself, well, if I say that, who knows what their reaction will be? Maybe they'll say something that is not supportive. Um, Maybe they'll be shocked, and I'll have to talk with them it it you don't know how people will will react and it just seems like such a huge topic to open up for sure and to take the chance on their um 
uh, on their ability to respond. Yeah. Even even if you're prepared to speak about it, uh, you can't count on how other people might um, might come back at you. I guess. Right. Right. And some people would just get so anxious um, that it was not in any way uh, supportive. You, you just were sorry you had mentioned it. So Right. You know, before we leave today, I, um, I, I was just thinking in my mind, I actually find this a little, in my own feeling state, a little similar to people I know who, uh, that thing we've just been talking about, think people I know whose uh, parents have Alzheimer's, that actually you lost Aaron um, when he got ill. You, yes. you lost the Aaron you had. Yes. And, and that in that whole period before his death, you were in grief. Uh, right. That that's how I would think of it. Um, but how to keep how to get other people on board with that? Um, that would that makes me want to ask you if you could share just to give us a sense of Aaron. I'd like to end with a sense of Aaron before illness, and I love that part of the book, um, Catherine's story about him. That seems okay. to capture what I got, uh, who I got to know in the book, uh, Aaron Before Illness. Okay. Um, Catherine went to high school with Aaron. She tells a story of how she became aware of Aaron when they were taking health class together. For a few weeks, we had a teacher whose classes consisted of lecturing us, don't smoke, don't have sex. If you have sex, you'll get pregnant. That's terrible. After listening for a week or two, I got fed up and I yelled at him, you don't understand anything, he said to see him after class. So after class in the hall, instead of looking at me, he was looking over my shoulder. I turned around and Aaron was standing behind me. He said, I agree with her. And whatever you have to say to her, you can say to me, too. I shared Catherine's feeling. Aaron had your back. His intelligence and strength supported those around him. Once, when we were passing a piece of paper back and forth, writing notes, he drew a box on the page, and under it he wrote, This space for ingridity. (laughs) <laughs> that case was a gift. That he he seemed such a dear young person uh, to me, reading about him. So um, so caring for others, and that must have been quite a terrible thing to lose um, when he got sick. That kind of. Um, Respect for others' feelings and and his courage to stand up like that—that's that's a hard thing to do at uh, in high school, 
stand up for what you believe in when you're not up against it? Well, I don't think he was very afraid of that health teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not too afraid of getting in trouble. (laughs) No. More more afraid of of not supporting his girlfriend, maybe. Well, she wasn't his girlfriend at that time. Oh, she was just a friend at that time. What a great advertisement for him. (laughs) This was how she got to know him, was when he, he stood up and... And it was really, but he, in general, with his teachers, he was wonderful. I mean, he was the same with them as he was with us. That We're going to have to leave it there, but that's a wonderful place to leave it, um, This talking about him that way. And listeners, I hope you'll look for Losing Erin, the beautiful book Ingrid wrote at Amazon, and find her at ingridblaufarbhues.com. Next week, I'll have Amy Venata Slater to talk about her book, Moments, Magic, Miracles, and Martinis, How to Move Forward in Times of Uncertainty. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.